our culture, I'm going to begin, we read, we read this in our scripture reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and our service this morning will be focused on, on the cross of Christ and uh, directing, leading directly into communion in a few minutes. And when I read 1 Corinthians 1, it speaks about foolishness and wisdom. And I look at our culture today, and I think, you know, we live in a culture that takes great pride in, I'm sorry, I'll just say it this way, we take pride in stupidity. I, I, I think, I can't believe that it's 20 years ago now. It's 20 years ago that a TV show came out that was named after another name for a donkey, in which men did, some of you are snickering, in which men did absolutely stupid things, which certainly should have hurt them and maybe even killed them, and they recorded it and put it on national TV, and it became a, a mega hit. Silliness. Today we have shows like Jersey Shore and Buck Wild and the new 20, 2020 hit, The Tiger King. <laughs> Am I alone in saying these the stupid? Okay, they're just stupid TV shows. Um, but however, the Greeks were a people who prided themselves not on, on ignorance, but they prided themselves on wisdom. And, and there are many people today in our culture who think of themselves as, cult, as philosophers. They're probably not philosophers. They, it's, for the most part, it's a hobby. But in ancient Greece, philosophy was a profession. Philosophy comes from the, two, the a marriage of two words, phileo, which means love, and sophia, which is wisdom. It's the love of wisdom. And the ancient Greeks spent so much time debating over different philosophical topics. They loved using reason and logic and different forms of, of rhetoric to debate. Some of our candidates could use some lessons from them, perhaps. And many Greeks would devote their lives to philosophy. But here's the thing, if wisdom was the greatest honor, then the greatest shame would be the opposite, that is, foolishness. Now, I think everybody in middle school at some point studies Greek mythology and learns about different gods of the Greeks and Romans, and they believed in many gods, they believed in their myth, these mythologies to be true. We look at them as interesting stories, they thought they were reality. The purpose of the Greek gods was to try to explain how things work that they simply could not understand otherwise. Uh, in many ways, these ancient gods, and I put that small g in, in quotation marks, they were really nothing special. They were very much like men with, with extra power. They were, had special abilities, namely, the most special thing about a Greek god or a Roman god was that they could not die, they were immortal. And in other way, ways, they acted just like we do. They had, they had flaws, they had weaknesses, they had vices. Uh, to the Greeks, the gods were great, and they were great because they were powerful, but they could also understand them. They could associate with them and their flaws because their gods were gods of their own making. That's not the case with the one true God. He can't be completely understood. He's far bigger than we are. We've been singing about that. And by their, their very nature, the definition of a God, even the, to the Greeks, was that they were immortal. And an immortal being, of course, can't die. It's not that it's hard to kill a God. It's 
impossible. And so this idea for a Greek of a cross on which God dies is foolishness. To them, there's no way this could be possible. This makes no logical sense whatsoever. And they hear the message of the cross, these people that Paul was writing to, and they think, how stupid. This makes no sense. The idea of God dying on a cross is absurd. I really don't think we understand the nature of the cross in our world today. Um, I want to, I'm asking us to, I'd like to ask us to turn to Philippians chapter 2 and try to understand a little bit, perhaps, about what it was like for God to leave heaven, become like us. This passage is, is used by theologians so often. For, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, we call this the kenosis passage, the passage that explains the self-emptying of Jesus Christ, where he divested himself of his eternal attributes and, and took on flesh. And I'd like to read, beginning at verse 5, Philippians 2, 5, "...have this attitude in yourselves, which was, which was also in Christ Jesus." who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It says here in verse, in verse 6, he existed in the very form of of God. And that word form is interesting. It's the, it's the word morphe. And it, it doesn't just mean that he had the same shape as God, like we might think of form or figure. It, it means that he was in very essence God, his, his character or the core of his being. He was fully God. He existed in heaven as God. And yet, what did he do? He emptied himself and in verse 7, he took the morphe, or the form, of a bondservant. He was, in very essence, also a man. Now picture this. He had all the glories in heaven, all the pleasures of heaven, the magnificence of being, being God, and, and, and he gave it up. I've used this illustration many times. I, forgive me if you've heard it from me six or seven times, but I think it illustrates so well what I think this was like. Many years ago now, my father and I were, were working in the, in the propane business, and we installed a, a water heater in a basement of the home in Treverton. This was a two-story home, and like many homes in Treverton are, it, had, it was built on a hillside, and it had an exposed basement, a walkout basement, and um, a two-story home, the, the, the front of the house, the first floor exited to the ground level. The back side of the house, the basement exited to ground level. The problem was the front of the house was surrounded by a porch roof that made it unable to use a ladder to get onto the roof. And so we had to use the back of the house, but we didn't have a ladder tall enough to reach three stories. So there was a deck that came off the first floor but it was on the north side of the house. You know what decks are like on the north side of a house? They're slimy, and they, you know, sometimes they get moss on them, and that, this house was like that. 
And so we set the ladder up there, and we were trying to made several trips up and down the, the ladder. And on one trip, I was carrying some tools up, ready to step out. And I was, I was on that top, you know, that, that critical moment where your one foot's on the ladder, and the next foot is swinging out onto the roof of the house. Uh, and I was swinging that foot around onto the roof of the house, and suddenly the ladder was not underneath my feet anymore. That ladder just took off. And I had several thoughts flashed through my mind at that time. The first thought was somewhat humorous, but it's actually the, the point of this story. My first thought was, I really don't want to tear their gutters off their house. <laughs> the second thought was, this is really going to hurt. And the third thought came moments later when I opened my eyes and I didn't hurt. And I was hanging upside down with my feet caught in the rungs of the ladder, which had fallen partway down, got jammed in against the railing of the deck, and another, the top of the ladder jammed against the part of the house. And there I hung like a bat upside down with my feet, my, with my head about five feet off the ground. And I was glad I had big feet that day because they got caught in the rungs of the ladder, and, and there I hung. Now, here's the interesting part. I looked up at that gutter. My first thought was what? I don't want to rip their gutter off. But I looked up at the roof of that house. I looked at that gutter. And you know what? It was all bent to pieces. It was pulled down. Why do you think that is? Because I had attained a certain level, and I did not want to lose it. And as I began to fall, I don't even remember it, but I grasped and grabbed and clawed at anything that was within my reach. And I apparently grabbed at that gutter and... And it, it, didn't, it didn't hold me. Philippians 2, 7, I'm sorry, verse 6, says, Jesus Christ was in very essence God. But when it came time to take on flesh and become an also in very form man, he did not grasp at his divinity. I clawed at anything I could. He did not. He, he willingly laid it aside. He temporarily suspended his, his use, his independent use of all the things that were his in heaven and took on flesh. And not only that, but he, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Where the construction is actually even the death on a cross of a cross, something that was known to be the most horrible, painful way to die there ever was. The, the word is staros, uh, the word for cross. We use it as a symbol today. We use it as a decoration. We, we decorate our churches with it. We use it as jewelry around our neck. Uh, we might use it as a logo, perhaps for our business or as a bumper sticker on our car. But in the first century, people who knew what the cross was, they tried to avoid the very word. That word sent shivers down their spine. Anybody who was familiar with what it actually meant. We today say somebody passed away. Why? Because the word died is harsh. They used to use the word, they said somebody was lifted up. Because the thought of using that word cross was, was 
That was harsh. That was crass. But in 1 Corinthians 1.27, we read that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. You know, the uniqueness of Christianity is, is not in that it's the only monotheistic religion. There are others. There are other religions where there's one God. It, the uniqueness of Christianity is not in that, in that it's the only religion that claims to give answers to the problems of life. Other religions do that too. There are many religions that promote a good lifestyle. Uh, many religions that promote service and taking care of others and, and all that. But there's only one religion that was founded by something like a cross. There's only one religion where God gives his life to save mortal men. You know, if Christianity was a religion developed by man, I don't think it would ever have centered around something as foolish, as shameful, as disgusting, as cursed as a cross. But here's the reality of it. God doesn't care for the great know-it-all attitudes of men. Well, the foolishness of the cross did not end in ancient Greece. I think people still find it foolish. The world doesn't understand why we won't go to parties all the time and get drunk. The world does not understand why we would sacrifice careers and finances to serve in a church or to serve in a community. The world doesn't understand putting others first. It doesn't understand self-denial. The world thinks we too are fools. The world does not understand that our sin is an offense to a holy God, one so great we cannot fix it or correct it on our own, that no amount of good can make up for it, no degree or of self-improvement can ever make us good enough. We need a substitute. The world does not understand that. That's not the natural way to think. What we need is someone to take our penalty, someone to die in our place. What we need is indeed that which the world sees as foolish. We need a cross. But the cross does something else for us also. It does something else for the very people who consider it foolish. I'd ask you to turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. And verse 11 reminds us of something. He, Paul wants us to remember. And he says in verse 11, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth, and by the way, that's us. I, I can't be certain, but I don't know if there are any Jewish people in this room here today. But I'd say with some amount of certainty, that's probably all of us here. Therefore, remember that, form, that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise. Underline these words, without hope and without God. But now, verse 13, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have what? 
We've been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier by the, by the destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For, by, for through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. 2020 has been weird. But I'll tell you one thing, race and ethnicity have been pushed to the forefront of our thinking once again. And I don't know if there are any in this room or few who have ever experienced prejudice. People who, I don't know if there's anybody here who knows what it's like to to not be included to, or to be outside, to be told you can't go to that school simply because of the color of your skin or you, you can't ride that bus because of who your parents are, to be told you can't drink from that fountain because of your ethnicity. I don't think anybody here, maybe I'm wrong, has experienced that. Or to be suspect and feared before you're even known. Can you imagine Can you imagine being told you can't come to God because of your race? And yet, that's the way it was before Christ. So far, but no farther. As a Gentile, you could approach the temple, but you could only go so far, and then there was a wall, a literal wall. It said, you, you can't go past this point. This is the court of the Gentiles. No farther. You're not Jewish. <laughs> but today, because of the foolishness of the cross, we Gentiles can sing songs like, Just as I am, without one plea, but that your blood was shed for me. We have access to God the Father, that the wall has been torn down spoken of in Ephesians 2. And he's taken Gentile and Jew and made them one family. I'm thankful for that. If we could go back to Philippians chapter 2 again. In Philippians 2 verse 9, the very next verses. After Jesus was found in appearance of a man, and after he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even that death of a cross, look what happens next. For this reason, God highly exalted him. What reason? Because of the foolishness of the cross. You see the contrast? The foolishness of the cross, and for that reason, God exalts him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. 
those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see that? God highly exalted him, exalted him to the highest. Question, did he exalt him to something higher? Did he exalt him to a place higher than he had before? Verse 6 declares that he was already equal with God. Several verses I'd like us to look at. And you can decide for yourself. Revelation 5, verse 9. We might move through these quicker than you can find them, and if so, uh, forgive me. But I'm going to read them to you. Revelation 5, 9 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You see, being crucified here, being obedient to the point of death on a cross, makes him worthy to be highly exalted. Peter says in Acts chapter 5, he was just in prison, he was released, he was told to preach not again, and yet he leaves the prison. And he says in Acts 5.30, The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to the right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Precisely because he was crucified through that foolish cross, because he was killed and raised, he is now the leader, exalted, and he can act as savior and redeemer. In Ephesians 1, in Ephesians 1.20, Paul says that he brought about in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places. So he, he's, he's raised from the dead. He's dead, he's raised. Now he's seated at the right hand of God far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named. And he puts all things in subjection under his feet, and he has given him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. As a crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ is now everything we need. And he's exalted. We could go on and on throughout Philippians and Acts and Revelation Passages which talk about this lamb which is slain is now exalted. Uh, Revelation 12, I'm sorry, 5 says, They sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. The picture of a slain lamb comes from way back in the Exodus. Children of of Israel are in bondage under Pharaoh. They've been there for 400 years as Moses pleads for their release. The the Plagues fall on Egypt. The last plague, of course, is the death of the firstborn when the angel of death passes over over Egypt. And they were told what? To find a lamb, a perfect lamb, without spot. It's found in Exodus chapter 12. Kill it. Take the blood of the lamb and put it on the doorpost of your home, over the top 
and on the sides. And when the angel of death passes over, when he sees the blood of a lamb, he will pass over that house and spare the firstborn. The lamb had to be a male. It had to be one year old. Not six months, not five years. It was too young to breed, too young to fight, old enough to be valuable. The lamb had to be unblemished. Could not be, had to be clean on the outside, innocent on the inside. It had to be inspected for four days, separated from the rest of the flock, inspected for four days to make sure that it it truly was okay, it wasn't sick and about to die, that it measured up to the standards. And I think when I read that story, I think, imagine, imagine if a man had said, I'm not my best lamb. I've got this old crippled one over here. I mean... (laughs) It's got blood. It'll do. Or, or, or what, if, what if a man had said, I just painted these doorposts. <laughs> I don't want to smear blood all over them. Here, let's just kill a lamb and dump the blood out here on the back do- out the back door and dump it around in the ground. I think this makes more sense. When the angel of death passed over, would that have worked? You see, the Passover lamb worked when God's instructions were followed perfectly by faith, not by reason. We, too, escape the wrath of God when we follow his word 100% by faith, not by reason. If you read that passage in in Exodus chapter 12, you'll see that there are provisions for if a family doesn't have a lamb that they could go together with another household and they could kill one lamb together. If the house was too small for a lamb, there was a way to get around that. But I want to point out to you that the lamb, no matter the size of the house, the lamb was never too small for the household. There's nothing for which the blood of Christ cannot forgive. There's no sin too great For the blood of Christ to cleanse, there's no man who's gone too far, there's no woman who's gone too far, rebelled too great, offended too much. Jesus is that Passover lamb, and his blood is enough for me. His blood is enough for you.